That was funny. I kept tapping Pastor on the shoulder. Can I go now? No. Can I go now? Yes, you can go now. Well, again, I want to thank you all for praying for me as I was in Ghana. It was the first trip there. I think we'll probably be going back. It was a great teaching trip. Taught Systematic Theology 1. It was uh, 25 guys. By the way, if you're not getting my email, our emails, uh, I need your email addresses if you'd like them. I was talking to a few people the last couple of days. Oh, yeah, we don't get those. We'd like to get those. And I say, well, give me your email address. And the response was, it's in the directory. Scott, you're just so lazy you can't look in the directory for our email addresses. No, it's not that. It's that I don't want to send people stuff if they don't want my stuff. So, so please, if you want to get updates and so forth when I'm on various fields and so forth, just give me your name and a sheet of paper with an email address and I'll add you to my contact list and you'll be able to kind of know what's going on. Otherwise, the um, update is posted out there in the foyer. We're getting some feedback here. Okay, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our series in this wonderful book. While you're turning there, let me remind you of the, what's going on in this portion uh, in chapter uh, 2, verses 113. He begins this huge section on how believers should relate to other people. So in, in 2, 13 through 17, he, he speaks of how we as Christians should relate to human government, to those over us. How do we relate to them? And then beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2, he starts talking about uh, how slaves or employees relate to their masters, their employers. So if you want biblical counsel on how you relate to your boss, this is the kind of text you look at. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he speaks specifically to wives as to how they relate or should relate to their husbands. And then chapter 3, verse 7, he speaks to husbands. Okay, this is how you care for your wife. And he expounds on that. And beginning in verse 8, uh, well, I'm sorry, verse 8, he speaks to all believers about how they relate to one another in the local church. And if we want a church that pleases God, if we want a church that, that God is going to bless, and uh, uh, this is the kind of thing that we need to find within our fellowship. Okay, let me read verse 8 to remind you of that. We looked at this in a previous week. Finally, all of you, and note that, he doesn't say, finally, pastors. Finally, all of you in the churches, here's how you relate to one another. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, which is kind of a key phrase there. It informs us that he's speaking to believers in this verse. Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If, if this church family is going to be what God intends it to be, what God commands it to be, these kinds of traits, these kinds of ingredients need to be within our fellowship. And a lot of good things can be happening, uh, but if this verse doesn't describe who we are as a church family, we have real serious spiritual problems. Let me encourage you to examine that text once again, maybe, and, and, uh, and uh, note how you should be involved in our church ministry. Now, beginning in, in chapter uh, 3, verses 9 through 12 now, he seems to veer off to how do we respond to others in the world who persecute us. Let's just read that. Beginning in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary... 
Bless those, uh, bless, for this, uh, to this you've been called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear is open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Probably the end of verse 12 there keys us in very strongly that we're talking here about unbelievers. This isn't speaking of individuals reviling you in the church. It's speaking of those in the, the world who are mistreating you because of your stand for Christ. Now what's said here does apply to our relationships with one another. If someone in the church family um, mistreats you, how do you handle that? We find that in this text. But specifically here he's talking about our relationship to the world, I think. Now let me just, let's look at verses 9 through 12. Let me just show you the, the way it lays out, okay? Verse 9, in verse 9 we find the, the, the two uh, commands within this text, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And then in verses 10 through 12, we find a quotation from Psalm 34, uh, verses 12 through 16. You'll see that the way it's laid out in your, biblical, in, your, in your Bibles. And what I think he's doing here is he's taking this quotation and allowing it to um, support what he's saying in verse 9. So this morning we're going to examine verse 9 and allow the quotation of Psalm 34 to kind of inform us further as to our understanding of verse 9. All right? So we're called to love our persecutors. That's really the bottom line of these verses. We are called to love those who persecute us, which isn't easy, which, by the way, this is a very apropos text for us right now. Probably the... Um, the level of angst against believers, the level of mistreatment and, and, and angry attitudes toward believers, toward those who stand for Christ, stand for any kind of biblical morality, probably that level's higher now than it has been ever, maybe, in our world. And so there's application here for us, because as we move forward, if we live godly lives in this world, in the USA, we're probably going to face more reviling and mistreatment from the unsaved. Well, Paul, uh, Peter tells us how to respond here. We are called to love those who persecute us. Let's pray and we'll, we'll look at this text this morning. Father, we're thankful for how practical your word is, how it meets our every need. Right now, this particular text is so helpful to us. It's so crystal clear. It tells us what to do. You tell us what to do in a world where we'll be maybe mistreated, persecuted, maligned, insulted. We know how in our sinful response we might want to, to, we might, might want to respond, but we see here how we must respond. And so we ask that you to help us as we apply this portion of Scripture to our lives, to, as we are relating to other people who might not appreciate us or our stand for Christ, that we might respond in a way that lifts up Christ and pleases you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. We're called to love our persecutors. 
So first of all, this is really a, an easy text to understand. First of all, we do not repay evil for evil. So first thing he states in verse 9. We do not repay evil with evil. Someone does something against you, someone tries to hurt you uh, physically, or confronts you physically, because of your stand for Christ, we don't return evil to them. We don't think, well, they just did that to me. I'm going to get back now. You're not the only one who can play this game. That's not how we respond. God consistently commands us to return evil for, with kindness. Let me read a few texts that you know well, I think. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, oh, I, I've got different counsel for you. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's maybe not our initial response, is it? But it must become our, our response. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, this is what God does. He loves those who hate him. And we, as his followers, must do the same. And then he illustrates that. He says, He, God, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We're in agrarian culture here. And so if the crops are going to grow, they need sun and they need rain. And God, responding to believers and those who hate him, treats both with kindness. He sends rain and sun on the unbelievers Believers and unbelievers alike. Illustrating how we need to be treating those who would mistreat us. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? You know, everyone does that. Are not even tax collectors doing that? Tax collectors were really hated in this world, in this particular New Testament world. And even they love their kids and their wives and so forth. So you're not doing anything special if you love only the ones who love you back, is the point. And if you greet other, uh, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. If you greet in kindness uh, uh, someone in your sphere of influence, in your family, if you greet them in kindness, and duh, everyone does that. Even the unsaved, even the pagans do that. We're just called to a different standard, folks, a higher standard. Paul says same things. In, in, uh, in, in Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He goes on in verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, and it may not always be possible, but if it's possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone, including those who mistreat you, is the point. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Our job is to respond in love and kindness. Let God worry about the, the justice, which we'll talk about a little bit later. He goes on to say, on the contrary, God will do the avenging. God will make sure justice is meted out. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, do what? Give him to drink. Not, oh, you're hungry, huh? Tough beans for you. I don't really like you anyway. The way you've been treated, the way you've been treating me, I hope you lose 50 pounds and don't get any food. And I hope you don't have enough to drink. I'd be thrilled about that. I'm not going to say that. I'm too Christian to say that. But I feel that way. No, no, no. 
you feed. Uh, you, you, you give to drink. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So we find this, this idea of repaying evil with evil being wrong. We don't do this. We find this throughout the scriptures. Now look at verse uh, th- uh, 11 of, ch- of chapter 3. We'll, we'll pull in what the, what the psalmist, what David the psalmist teaches. Let him, so now he's adding to this command, do not repay evil with evil. He's kind of fleshing it out a little bit with, with, um, with, with the Old Testament text, with Psalm 34. Let him turn away from evil and do good. This is part of not repaying evil with evil. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The language here is really interesting. He says, turn away from evil. This word turn away from speaks of, well, pulling away from, uh, swerving away from, yanking yourself out of that situation. Our granddaughter, Evie, when she comes over, inevitably, if it's nice weather, she wants to go outside. And so she does chalk drawings. Sometimes there's like 15, 20 little chalk drawings all over the, it's wonderful, brightens up our concrete really well. Brightens up the grandparents really well. Um, and then it rains and she has to do it again. The other thing she likes to do is ride on her little balance bike. She has one at our house and at their house. And we'll go around the neighborhood, red light, green light, and she gets too far ahead. Red light, she stops. Green light, go ahead, you know, all of that. But sometimes she just wants to go fast. And our driveway is pretty level, not, not, not a bunch of cracks. So often Victoria now be on, she'll be on, Victoria will be on one end of the driveway, I'll be on the other. And every just <laughs> going as fast as her little legs can get her going. And it's extremely cute, but sometimes she comes right at us. And she's like huffing and puffing, coming right at us. And we wonder, is she going to veer off or is she going to slam into us? And I wonder if she's thinking, I wonder if these old people know how to dance. I'm going to find out. And she's just flying right at us to see how we'll move. Well, if she doesn't swerve, what do we do? That we swerve. You know, we jump out of the way. That's what we do. Otherwise, the kid's going to run us over and there'll be dead grandparents on the ground. That's the idea of this word, folks. To pull yourself away from. And notice what he says. Um, Turn away from evil and do good. So here's the, the point. I have a choice now. I'm being mistreated by someone. I have a choice. Do good or do evil. Well, I'm inclined maybe sometimes, at least, to do evil. What do I do when I'm feeling that way? I yank myself back. I turn away from that choice. I swerve away from that option. I simply don't do it. And that's not enough, of course. Not only do you turn away from evil regarding this person who would do you evil, but you do good in response. You seek peace and pursue it. It's not enough just to back away. When you have opportunity, you re-engage and you do good. And you do all you can to seek peace with this person who doesn't like you and is doing what they can to maybe bring ruin in your life. You yank yourself away from your, maybe your initial sinful response, and then you re-engage with, I need to do good. I need to pursue peace. This word pursue is interesting. 
It's, it's a hunting term referring to chasing down something, chasing down an animal. And this is not just, oh, I'll re-engage. This is, I'm going to re-engage. I'm going to pursue peace. That's my goal here, is, is peace. One of my favorite teachers at Detroit Seminary was Bruce Compton. Dr. Compton was an excellent Hebrew and Greek teacher. And before, in his early life, he was a pilot. He flew in the Vietnam War. I remember one time talking to him, and he said, the other night, I thought someone was breaking into my house. He said, I heard a noise, thought someone was breaking in, and he said, I immediately went into Vietnam mode. Right? There's fight or flight. He was in the fight part. He was going to defend his family and his kids, his wife, himself, and his, his, his house. And sometimes that's how we are. Uh, you mistreat me, and my initial response is fight. And that's exactly what you can't do, according to this text. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, if someone's breaking into your house, or if someone is physically you know, busting you up or your family, I'm not saying that we don't have responsibility to care for our families and even our own self. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the realm of Christianity where people, because of your stand for Christ, are, are on you, are aggressive towards you. How do you respond? You seek peace. That's how we respond. Secondly, we do not repay insult with insult. That's what he says here in verse 9. We may, we may be the kind of people who are too civilized uh, to, to, you know, deck somebody uh, if someone's in our face. But we may instead resort to language. So they're in our face and we're in their face. And they're yelling and insulting and we're yelling and insulting back. Or maybe we stand there and take it, but then when it's cooled down, we start saying things behind their back about them. We do what we can to insult them, to revile them, to slander them before others. That's the idea of this term, by the way. It's speaking, this word revile, speaking face-to-face with someone, negatively, aggressively, in hostility. It can also refer to speaking to others, slander, gossip. And we're probably too civil and too Christian maybe to, uh, to swing, but we might do this. And this is just as evil as if you take a swing. Now look at verse, verse 10. He informs us a little more utilizing this psalm. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Keep your tongue from evil, from the idea is base, degrading, profane, slanderous speech. Keep your, your tongue from deceit, from lying, from trickery with words intended to hurt other people. You probably know Psalm, or Proverbs chapter 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. He hates these things. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. God hates this. 
If you slander in return, if you're gossiping and lying about someone for their, for their ill, God absolutely hates that. Now notice the word keep here. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See that word? It, it speaks of an energetic, energetic restraint of something. It is a holding back. It's this kind of uh, strengthening your, your stand with your back foot and holding back. Energetic restraint. Holding this back. He's talking about holding our tongues back. When you would normally respond with anger, with slander, with gossip, whatever it is, you hold that back. And it's interesting, you know, when you look at James chapter 6, we can see why we have to hold the tongue back. James chapter 3, 6 through 8, speaks of the infamous nature of our, our tongues. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the, the entire course of life. Your tongue can set your life on fire by what you say and is set on fire by hell. Our tongue can be a very useful tool for Satan. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So folks, we, we always respond with kindness physically. We give to drink, we give food to our enemies. And when it comes to verbal, we restrain the natural inclinations of our tongue. We hold it back. Now, how many of us have said this? An hour, an hour after something happens, man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Boy, that was the wrong thing to say. Or boy, Something should have been said by me, but the way I said it was absolutely wrong. That's what we're talking about here. Instead of coming, instead of coming to that regret, restrain, energetically hold back what you want to say. What your sinful passions are drudging up in your mind. Better to say nothing and come back two hours later and say, let me respond to what you said. After you've calmed down, cooled down, the Holy Spirit's been working and your brain is thinking again, better to, to say nothing than to say something that you wish you hadn't said. Or, and that's something that you did say ends up inflaming the situation more, which that's often the case. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath. Okay, so the question is why? Why do I do this? And uh, he answers it here. Look at, look at verse 9 again. I want you to notice first the little phrase, phrase, but on the contrary. That's a really strong phrase in the Greek. Don't repay evil for evil or verbal reviling with verbal reviling, but on the contrary, instead of that, as, as strongly as Peter could write it, instead of that, bless. Be a blessing to others. This is the, this Greek word uh, eulageo, which is usually verbal, where you get our word eulogy from it. 
What's a eulogy? Someone standing up at a funeral and saying very wonderful things about the person who's passed away. That's this word. Instead of responding in some physical way, wrong way, or some verbal way that's wrong, instead of that, bless. Which would mean to their face, bless them, kindness, in the face of rebuke or attack, kindness. It could also speak of blessing them in relationship to God. Praying for them would be the idea, which we've seen Jesus and Paul both say. Pray for those who persecute you. This is so strong. On the contrary, you will be tempted, I think is the implication. You'll be tempted to repay evil with evil and, and verbal attacks with verbal attacks. Instead of that, all bold caps underline bless instead. Then keep going. <clears throat> For to this, because, why do I do this? Why do I bless instead of go on the attack? Because to this you've been called. So why are we to do this? When we'd like to do maybe what we'd like to do in our flesh. First of all, this is part of our Christian calling. Now Peter talks about what we're called to do four times in this book. This is one of those times. He says in 2.9, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In eternity past, God decreed one decree encompassing all things. In that decree was this uh, plan to call you in time, sometime in time, to call you out of darkness into his saving light. His he planned from eternity past to save you. He called you to himself to save you. In chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, if you endure that kind of treatment, ungodly treatment, bad treatment, for to this you've been called. We've been called in eternity past. Part of that eternal decree is God planning that we're going to face suffering. And when we do that, we have to realize we're called to this. And now he's adding that. When other people are in your face, when other people are on the attack, physically, verbally, or both, you are called, we are called to bless those people, to respond with kindness and goodness, to pray for them. This is part of who we are. And it gets back to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Your father is doing this with people who hate him. It rains on the crops, Sun shines on the crops. He's blessing those who love him and those who hate him. So first of all, folks, we're called to this. This is who we are. We're Christians. We're God followers. We're Christ followers. And this is the God thing, the godly thing to do, the Christ-like thing to do. Secondly, this, uh, this response to uh, attack, this engenders God's blessing. And he lists, I think, three blessings here. Look at the end of verse 9. That you may obtain a blessing. And I think he describes now some of these blessings in this quotation. Look at verse, verse 10. Whoever desires to, live, to love life and to see good days, if you desire those things, keep your tongue. And your lips. 
from sin. So this kind of behavior engenders blessing. Now, what does he mean here by loving life and good days? Well, in the context of this book, he sure is not talking about easy life or life without persecution or trial or struggle. He's not talking about that. He's also not talking about life where people don't die. People were dying for Christ during this time. So what's he talking about? Enjoy, you know, enjoy life and have good days. I think, I, think, I think it's simply what we find out through all of Scripture. We live above our circumstances. God promises us a life that we love. He promises us good days. The whole point is, if we live for God and respond to trials in this way, our lives will be valuable, worthwhile, enjoyable. You know, there are Christians that I know and you know who just are woe is me people. And if None of us should be woe is me people. Focusing on the trials in front of you right now. Because, you know, when this one's over, there's another one, you know, over the, over the hill. Life's full of trials and hardships. And if you're going to woe is me over every struggle, including these kinds of struggles described here, if you're going to woe is me over that, your whole life is woe is me. And God's people are to rise above circumstances and enjoy the life God's given them and all the blessings. Don't focus on the trial. Don't focus on the people on the attack. Focus on all the good that's in your life. And if you've got nothing good in your life, you know Christ, and you know this for sure. The trials I'm facing right now, this is at the worst it'll ever be for me. Do you realize for the unbeliever, this, is the, this life is the best it'll ever be for them? But for those of us who know Christ, going through trial, this is, the, this is the worst it's going to be. And in how many years will I be in God's presence, the presence of my Savior, and live in absolute eternal bliss? Something I can't even imagine. I'll, uh... So we have every reason to be rejoicing people, people who rejoice, the people who value all that God's given and live above the circumstances. The second blessing I think he mentions here is um, God's constant care. Verses 11 and 12. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. This is absolutely wonderful for these believers in their situation to dwell on this fact. God's watching over you every second and every prayer is heard by him. He knows everything that's going on. He sees every life situation. He knows about every single struggle you're facing. And this idea of his eyes being upon you is not just God knows, he sees, he knows all of it. It also implies care. God's watching over you in all of what you're facing. And when you pray, God's ears are never stopped up. You know, you're flying on a plane. You ever done this, going up and down? And you find that suddenly your, your hearing is kind of whacked out, and you start doing this. Or you chew gum, or whatever you do, to kind of get that thing to pop, so you now can hear clearly. God's never doing that. His ears are always wide open when you utter something. 
whether it's a faint cry in, in anguish and tears, or whether it's a crying out, whatever it is, decibel the decibel level doesn't matter. God hears all of it perfectly. And so the bottom line is, whatever you're facing, the kinds of trials he's describing here, or the or other trials of life, the bottom line is, you don't face any of this alone. You always have someone to go to who understands and who knows every angle of what you're, he knows more about what's going on in your life than you do. And when you think of him, he's watching over you and caring for you, and he's listening to every single word. And the third thing, the third, I think, blessing that he states here is the blessing of justice, which I've already mentioned. But look at the end of verse 12. As much as the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open, verse 12, the end, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In this context, the do evil is that mistreatment of believers. In other words, when you're struggling with someone, you know, well, God is going to, I don't have to mete out justice. I don't have to blow this guy away. I don't have to swing. I don't have to do anything. God is going to worry about that, and I'll let him worry about that. It's his job. It's his, his position is such that he will mete out justice at the right time and in the right way. And, of course, we hope that his justice will involve saving this person, and justly pouring out his wrath upon the Savior, this person taking advantage of that work, them coming to Christ would be wonderful. But if that doesn't happen, there will be justice. You don't have to worry about it. Let me remind you of, of Romans 12 again. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then another strong statement, statement. To the contrary, so this is God's part. He's going to avenge. Don't you take that, that job on, upon yourself. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink and so forth. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he clearly delineates the task of each one. God will mete out justice in his time and his way. You don't do it. To the contrary of that, you feed those who are your enemies, who are hungry, and you give them, you care for them, give them the drink. Minister to them. Now I think this, has, this text has great value for us today. As I said earlier. Because we have, in more recent history, felt the ire of others because of our Christian stand. And if you hold any kind of an open Christian stand, and I hope you do, and any open stand regarding morality and, and ethics, there are some people who just will not appreciate you, and some who will really, really not appreciate you. And this is not, the level we're at now is not the end. It's probably seemingly going to keep, keep elevating. Well, how do we respond? It's crystal clear. There's just no question what we do. We don't respond with evil back. We respond with good and kindness and blessing in our actions and in our speech. And then we're doing what God intends us to do. We're obeying our Christian calling. And then we know that God will bless us and watch over us. And then we also can rest in the fact that it's not my job 
to, to pour out justice. That's God's place. I will do what I'm supposed to do. I will love in return. Here's how we treat our persecutors. We love them. Thank you, Father, for this text. It does have great application to us today. Help us to apply it, each one of us. There may be some here. There may be some here who have people in their lives who are really hard on them, who openly express a dislike, who may do things physically, verbally to communicate that dislike. And if we didn't know how to respond an hour ago, we know now. Help us to prayerfully care for and love those who would mistreat us. That will be like you. This is what you do every day. You love those and you show love to those who hate you, Father. Help us to be God-like and Christ-like in our responses. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Thank you.